was trying to teach that God is never going to let go of us. So um, before we get in, I, I can say, you guys, I, I was really struck this morning, and I want to I tell you, because you don't know all this, but um, the, the, the people that put together what happens here on Sunday morning, you have uh, Chris and Spencer, Dale, some of these other guys, they have a whole team that, that works with them, and um, they put a lot of work into this. They put a lot of thought and a lot of prayer into this. They're not just picking songs. And so every, every morning we're, we're trying to uh, craft worship that will bring us to a place where, where we interact with God. And so uh, I, wanna, I tell you that because people like me, I put demands on them and, and ask them to do silly things at the last minute, and they figure out a way to make it happen, and that's really cool. And you need to know how blessed we are to, uh, to have folks like that here in this congregation. Um, as, as we move on, there are a few things I want to address before we dive in this morning. And uh, one of those is, is me personally, I'm going to try to get better about connecting with you guys. One of the things that, that I struggle with is, is visiting uh, people in their homes. And that's, that's expected of a preacher. The problem is, is that I was raised that you don't invite yourself to people's houses. That's rude. And my grandmother would turn over in her grave if she thought that I was doing that. So in order to get around that, I have created, well, let me be honest, Amy created, because I'm not skilled enough, um, Amy created a sign-up sheet, and it's in the box outside of my office. And so if you will put your name and some contact information on there and just say, hey, Jeff, I want you to come by and have a cup of coffee with me and talk about the world. That's cool. I want to do that, and, and that kind of gets me over the hump of feeling like I'm inviting myself to your house. And so maybe we can, can get around that. That's the purpose of that. Um, and I'll be able to find you if you don't know yet because we have this really cool new directory. And if you're like me, when I heard directory, you know, it was always you, you go stand in the fellowship hall and you get dressed up in the uncomfortable clothes that mom wants you to wear. And, and you stand around and you wait for an hour and 45 minutes, and then you go stand in front of the screen, and the guy makes faces at you and says silly things, and, and then you go sit down at a table, and they try to sell you stuff, and then about a, six months later, you get this little book that's out of date, and um, that's not what we're doing anymore. We have moved into the 20th century. Yes, we're, we're not. I know it's the 21st. We're just catching up. We have moved into the 20th century, and we have an app um, that, that uh, will enable us to have all that directory at your fingertips on your computer wherever you uh, access things like that so if you didn't get that last week um, go out here to to the hub the information center and there will be somebody who will help you figure out how to do that because you want to get connected with that and and it's a it's a really cool thing this week we're diving into a series we're calling scandalous love we're going to study the book of hosea um uh, I, it was really cool because I, I did this on a lark. I, I was kind of, you know, most churches this time of year are doing, doing sermons on uh, relationships or marriage because it's February and everybody's thinking about love. And so I figured what better than the story of the preacher and the prostitute um, to go with that. 
But God has really worked on me uh, as we've been in this, and so I hope that that He will work on you as well. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start in Hosea this week. We're gonna do more of Hosea next week. Then the next week, Impact. Uh, church from down in downtown Houston. They are a mission effort, if you don't know that, that ministers to people in the the downtown Houston uh, uh, area. They are going to be here to uh, lead our worship. They're going to handle the preaching and the and the singing and the, the whole thing, and so you won't want to miss that. And then we'll finish up Hosea the next week after that. So, in order to dive into Hosea, we have to start in the middle. Because in order for us to understand what happens in Hosea, we have to understand the climate that he lived in. And so we're going to start at the middle and work our way back. If you have your Bibles, Hosea chapter 6 is where we're going to start. But before we get there, I spent Thanksgiving night in jail. Not this year. It was uh, 1988. And some of you have heard me tell this story before, so I'm not going to go into deep detail. Um, You can go back and look that up, but um, let's just suffice it to say that stupidity leads to to bigger problems. Um, But I I, I was uh, playing mailbox baseball with some buddies of mine, and uh, we got in trouble for it because we were dumb, and uh, we got put in in the holding tank overnight. Um, I, I could have been let out because my dad knew everybody in Jasper County, but Little to me, little known to me, they called him that night and said, George, what do you want us to do with him? And he said, keep him. Um, and, and it was the right decision. It taught me a good lesson. But uh, at any rate, I, I spent the night there. The next morning, they picked me up. Um, I remember we were walking out, and, and they have a two-way glass there where you can see out into the waiting area, and we're in the, the back holding area. And I look out and I can see my mother and my father. And I ask the lady who was taking care of whatever they call it, unbooking or I don't know, whatever they call it. But I, can y'all keep me? Because this, this looks not as bad as that, that does. Um, at any rate, I went out and, and we rode home. It is, it is seven miles from the, the Aubrey Cole Law Enforcement Center to my parents' house. They were the seven longest miles of my life. Um, because my mother vacillated back and forth between crying, fussing at me, crying, breathing heavily, fussing at me, crying, all the way there. My father never said a word. Nothing. He just drove. And we drove all the way home. We parked in the driveway. My mother got out of the car, stormed into the house, still crying, still fuming, and left me and my dad sitting in the car. And it was quiet. And I knew I wasn't supposed to get out until whatever happened, happened. And it was quiet. And Dad finally said, Jeffrey, I just don't know what to do with you. And his heart was breaking. And I could hear that in his voice. That's where we find God in Hosea. God is in that same place when we get to Hosea chapter 6. God says in Hosea chapter 6 verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? God is shaking His head and saying to His people, Israel, I just don't know what to do with you. See, Hosea lives in the tragic final days of the northern kingdom. 
During this time, six kings are going to reign within a course of 25 years. Four of them are going to be murdered by their successors. One is going to be captured in battle. Only one will be succeeded by his son onto the throne. Five of these seven kings are said to have continued in the way of the first Jeroboam. You'll read in 2 Kings 14, 15, and 17 these stories. But all five of these, it says the same thing. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Now what was that? What was the sin of Jeroboam? Well, to do that, we've got to look back at 1 Kings 12, where where we see who Jeroboam was. After the death of Solomon, the nation is divided. And there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Rehoboam is the king of Judah in in the south, and Jeroboam is the king of Israel in the north. But Jeroboam is worried about the kingdom reuniting. He's worried, as many people in power are, about losing that power. He likes it. He wants to keep it. And so he is not going to allow that to happen. God has already said that he's making plans to reunite that kingdom, but but Jeroboam is looking for ways to stop that. And so he decides the best way to do that is to, to distract the Israelites from God with a new God. And so what he does is he creates golden calves. So the sin of Jeroboam that these kings continued in is national idol worship. Now we read that and we think, well, that's great. I like that. See, we like, we've talked about before, we like sins that don't apply to us, and we don't have any golden calves that we worship, so we feel pretty good about ourselves. We're not going to continue in the sin of Jeroboam because we're kind of off the hook. We don't have that. The sin of Jeroboam, though, was more than just idol worship. The sin of Jeroboam was that he has sought to achieve his own personal agenda. He put himself and his desires above God. And when his desires conflicted with God's desires, he changed God to fit the image that he wanted him to be in. Therefore, he avoided facing the wrong by changing his understanding of God. So our principle that we see in this is that encountering God will invariably change our personal agenda. When we encounter God, when we come into contact with God, when we directly uh, relate to God, it's going to change me. It's going to change what happens in me. If Jeroboam had really been worshiping God, he would have seen God's glory. And he would have seen his own sinfulness. And he would have wanted to do God's will, even if that meant losing his kingdom. So Jeroboam never really encountered God during his required temple worship times. He didn't have a relationship with God. He, he kept the rest of the nation from having a relationship with God by changing their understanding of who God was. Jeroboam wanted the power for himself. And so if we read between the lines in these references to Jeroboam, we see that the real underlying problem is that the people of Israel are pursuing their own agendas. They've changed their concept of God, and in the process, because it was too painful to have the real God around, they have lost their national identity. That's where we find them 
in Hosea. They have, the whole nation has continued along the path of Jeroboam. This attitude of dualism. This, this worldview that, that their own personal agendas and thoughts are more important than the agendas and thoughts of God. And so they come into worship and they offer their sacrifice as they're required to do by Jewish law. And they still go through the motions of following God. But then they return and they go back to their household idols. They go back to their idol worship. They go back to the lives that they normally lead and the two never intersect. As long as they kept the checklist, as long as they went through the motions of doing what God wanted, as long as they did the right things in the right way, they were okay. What happened in the temple stayed in the temple and had no real impact on the rest of their lives. It was just one more obligation that had to be completed. Unfortunately, that sounds familiar to us. In our society, that sounds familiar, especially in the South, in the Bible Belt. There are lots of people in church this morning. We show up on Sunday morning and we do the right things in the right ways. And we check off our checklist and then we go back to life. And the two don't really intersect. And if they do, if we do come into conflict with something about God that we don't like, then we have to change our understanding of who God is. We come to church and we worship. And, and the whole time, we're making sure that we're singing the right songs in the right way, that we're offering the right prayers in the right way, that we're doing the right communion in the right way, but our hearts aren't really in it. We're not really in tune with God. We're not really encountering a God who changes our personal agendas. And so we leave this building the same as when we come in. We distort our concept of God. So when we cling to those agendas, we emphasize or de-emphasize wherever God fits in our purposes. We lose an accurate picture of who God is. Jeroboam and the Jews changed God into a calf so that he was no longer a holy God, but just some kind of impotent object that sanctioned their own agendas. Their agendas of pursuing wealth, of pursuing pleasure, of pursuing power. That those were more important than a God who would change who they were. And we do the same thing. We have a tendency to pursue our own agendas and our own well-beings. And when God conflicts with that, we like to change Him to suit our own needs. Star Wars changed it into the Force. And the New Age movement has taken that up and now it's just a higher power. Because that higher power is just some entity out there that wants to help us complete whatever it is that we're trying to complete. Or maybe we change God into this grandfather image. That, that he's, he's just this kind, loving grandfather sitting in heaven, not really concerned with what we're doing. Y'all know, you're, there's grandparents in here. You spoil them. It's okay, you can admit that. You like that. You spoil them and send them home. And the parents have to deal with it. The parents have to discipline them. That's okay. That's what grandparents are for. I tell my kids' grandparents all the time, that's your job. You spoil them, you send them home, and I'll undo what you did. But when we see God that way as just this 
passive, permissive, sweet grandfather who doesn't care what I do and just wants me to be happy. We're changing God to fit our image. Sometimes we have this genie image of God or that He's just this big cosmic Santa Claus. That we bring to God whatever it is that we want and and, and we lay it at His feet and then the blessings just rain down. That, that God is just sitting up there waiting to give us whatever it is. You'll hear this preached in churches on Sunday morning. That the reason you don't have a new Lexus is because you just don't have enough faith. Because we're changing God to fit our image. Sometimes we change God into our political party. I don't care which one you are. They both do it. We change God to fit whatever it is that we believe about politics and we become disciples, not of God's Word, but of MSNBC or of Fox News. And and we seek that more than we seek the Word of God. It may be that, that we make God into our doctrine. And our tradition becomes more important than the Word of God. And so, even if the Word of God says something different than what we've always been taught, what we've always been taught wins. The bottom line is, if you have God all figured out, if your God never challenges you, if your God never scares you, if your God never overwhelms or surprises you, He is not the God of the Bible. Period. We're very much like the people of Hosea's time. We are very much the people who have our religious rituals. We have our religious time. We have our time blocked off for sacrifice and worship, but we really don't want it to interfere with the rest of our lives. But here's what God has to say to the people of Israel about that attitude. Hosea 6.6 For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. It's important for us to unpack that because God says that, these, that there are things that are more important than our worship. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. You got that? Right? We miss that sometimes. There are other things that God says are more important than worship. And one of those is that steadfast love in that passage. But what is that? What is steadfast love? The word translated steadfast love here is the Hebrew word hesed. It would really be pronounced hesed, but I'm not going to do that because I I feel stupid. But hesed is, is the Hebrew word. Hesed is hard for us to grasp. Because it's translated a lot of different ways in our Bible. It's translated love. It's translated loving kindness. It's translated steadfast love. It's translated mercy. It's translated kindness. It's translated favor. Because there's no good English translation. We don't have a word in English that means the same thing as has said. But... One of the keys to understanding God in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, is to understand what hesed is. Hesed is used 276, almost 300 times in the Old Testament. 150 of those are in Psalms alone. And it's always used most, not always, it's mostly used in relation to the character of who God is. God's steadfast love, God's loving kindness, God's hesed. Jesus himself will quote this passage in Hosea not once but twice when he's addressing the same behaviors in the Pharisees. 
He tells them, go figure out what said means, and then you'll understand who I am and what I do. That's the JPV. That's the Jeff paraphrase version. But it, it, it actually, he says, go learn what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 6.6 6 uses that word, has said, and it's translated steadfast love or mercy in our Bibles. But earlier in verse 4, the same word is translated love. Still later in chapter 10, verse 12, it will be translated kindness. Same book, same word, different places, different words. So what does it mean? Well, it's not an easy answer. As I stated before, it doesn't have a direct English translation. It's something like favor, but it's more than blessings. It, it, it has, uh, it's, it's like mercy, but it's not charity. It's, it's love, but it's more than a fleeting emotion. My friend Bobby Valentine puts it like this. Steadfast love, never-ending love. Hell will freeze over before I give you up, love. That's what has said is. It's the core of God's heart. It's who God is. God's has said is the essence of His being. His steadfast, never-ending love that will never let go of us even when we should have been let go of years ago. It's the love that you see in your spouse. When you look at her and you go, why in the world does she stay with me? Maybe that's just me. That I'm going to love you in spite of you, love. That's has said. It's the parent that refuses to give up on the kid that everybody in the world is telling them to give up on. That's has said. And that's the love of God. A little over a year later, after my dad and I sat in the driveway, I made another call to my dad. I had broken his heart a lot. Kids, that's what phones used to look like. There was a, they were on cords and ask your parents. That I was playing bass and singing in a rock band. And uh, see that guy, any cool? See the vest? He still had the vest. That's awesome. Um, I was playing bass and, and singing in a rock band, and uh, we had toured all over the South until our money ran out in a place called Maitland, Florida. Our money ran out. Our van broke down. We sold all our instruments just to eat, and it got to the point where we were digging wrapped food out of a Taco Bell dumpster. Not making this up. And it finally got to the point where we decided, you know what? We got to go home. We got to take a shot. And I very shakily made that call because I'm proud and stubborn, bullheaded, and I get that honest, and that's the person I was calling. And I, I knew that my mom wasn't the one I had to win over. And so I got on the phone, and I started making my plea, and I started making my case, and, and Dad interrupted me, and he said, Jeffrey... Why don't you just come on home? I had broken his heart so many times. I was nothing like what he had pictured his son being when I was born. I was the opposite of everything that he wanted me to be. 
But in that moment, He was showing me Hesed. He loved me in spite of me. He didn't give up on me even when I should have been given up on. That's God's love. That's Hesed. That's where God is with us. Everything that makes any sense says that we deserve judgment. We have taken His love and abused it. We've taken Him for granted. We, we have brought Him half-hearted worship and, and leftover sacrifices. And, and we've tried to form Him into an image that fits into our understanding of who we want Him to be. And by all rights, He should rain down judgment upon us. That's what we deserve. But His steadfast love, His loving kindness, His said, won't let Him do that. Hosea chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. God says, I should give you up. He spent the last few chapters from 6 to 11 talking about all the things that He should do to Israel. All the judgment that should rain down upon them. All the things that they deserve because of the way they've abused His love. But when He gets to chapter 11, He says, I can't do it. My compassion, again, my said, same word, won't let me. My compassion grows warm and tender. My said overcomes my anger. And this morning, that's where we are. See, we're Israel in this story. We have defiled Him. We have abused Him. We have neglected Him. We have taken His love for granted. And we've brought Him half-hearted worship. And we've brought Him the scraps from our table. And we call that sacrifice. And we call that worship. And by all means, by all rights, He should rain down judgment upon us. But He says, my said won't let me do that. I still love you even though I shouldn't. I don't know about you, but that's gospel. That's good news. That's good news for me. Because I'm guilty of this. I'm the one who has done this. Not the person next to me. Not the church down the street. Me. Me. I am the one who has taken God for granted. I'm the one who's come in with half-hearted worship. I'm the one who has left God in the church building until I come back and pick Him up next week. And by all means, He should leave me. He should let me go. But His said will not allow Him to do that. Praise God. Praise God for His steadfast love, for His loving kindness. That's the love that's offered to us this morning. If you're like me, you don't have to come up and, and, and do any kind of altar call. We're not about that. You can sit right where you are and offer up your heart to God. And I pray that you will do that this morning. If you're hearing this like I heard this when I was studying this, 
and, and God's convicting your heart like He convicted my heart, I, I pray that right now you will take this opportunity and say, God, I'm sorry. Thank you for loving me in spite of myself. And I want to be what you need me to be. I want to be what you deserve me to be. If you need to do that publicly, if you need to come down and you want us to pray over you, to lift you up, we'll praise God for that. That's what we're here for. If you need to come and publicly proclaim God, proclaim His Lordship over your life by submitting to Him in baptism, we will stop everything and praise God for that. Because that's what we're here for. We're not here for any other reason except to help you get into contact with God. Because His has said, His loving kindness never lets go. It never quits. No matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how much you think you've done, He still loves you no matter what. Come to Him. Submit to Him. Do that right now this morning while together we stand and sing.